All right, good evening and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is March 28th, 2023. I want to thank you all for being here. Our class tonight is going to be on the U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, since we're now 20 years after that. And we're going to be looking at just a little bit of context before and after as well, uh, and going into who profited the most, that kind of stuff. As I said, tonight's class is on the U.S. invasion of Iraq 20 years later. What we're going to be learning today is some context about the recent history of Iraq and the U.S. involvement in their affairs, the protests of 36 million people around the world against the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, the history of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq and the nine years of war that followed, and the aftermath of the Iraq war continued U.S. intervention in Iraq and where the Middle East and Iraq is today. And before we get started on the first section, what I have here is just some basic information about Iraq. I thought we should start doing this when we're talking about specific countries. So we have some maps to show you the regions, the roads, the climate, where it is in the Middle East. Uh, and I'll go ahead and read what it says here. It says, Iraq is a nation in West Asia or the Middle East which has existed independently since 1932, when the Kingdom of Iraq was founded and British colonial rule came to an end after years of struggle by the Iraqi people. Today, about 45,209,423 people, this is as of 2023, live in Iraq. In 2003, Iraq's population was about 27,070,000. Iraq's largest city and capital is Baghdad which has about 10,750,719 people today in 2023, more than 1.5 million more than New York City today. In 2003, the population of Baghdad was about 5,615,224. Iraq borders Iran, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the Persian Gulf. And also on the side here, you can see the history of their flags and the different changes that they've gone through. This one over here on the bottom left is their current flag. So we'll start with the prelude. Okay, so the prelude, the Iraq from 1968 until 2002. In 1958, the Kingdom of Iraq was ended and the monarchy overthrown in the 14th of July revolution by quote the free officers who were pan-arab nationalists and opposed to western imperialism that's what they call the bath party i believe in 1963 the arab socialist bath party of iraq seized power in iraq overthrowing the free officers following this the bathist hunted down iraqi communists that belonged to the Iraqi Communist Party and killed around 5,000 of them. In 1968, the leader of the Ba'athist Iraq, Abdulrahman Arif, was overthrown by the Ba'ath Party in the 17th of July revolution and was exiled to Turkey. From there, Ahmed Hassan al-Bakar was installed as president and all other parties in Iraq were banned, beginning the Ba'athist party. By 1975, Ba'athist Iraq nationalized its oil industry. 
in turn angering the US, whom Arif was trying to work closer with. On July 16, 79, Saddam Hussein took control of the offices of the president, leader of the Ba'ath Party and chairman of the Revolutionary Command Council. The war, the Iraq-Iran war. September 22, 1980, Iraq launched an invasion of Iran. This was for many reasons, including the Ayatollah Khomeini was exiled from Iraq in 78, and after the Iranian revolution, called for Iraqis to overthrow the Ba'athist government of Iraq. Saddam also wanted to expand Iraq to include the oil-rich areas of Khuzestan in Iran. Iran-Iraq war. The war lasted from 1980 to 1988, and it cost one to two million lives. And both sides failed to get what they achieved. Iraq made uh, no territorial gains by the end of the war, and Iran failed to see Iraq's government toppled. The United States funded both sides of the war. It sent helicopters and cluster bombs to Iraq, and then it gave millions of dollars in food credits to Iraq to buy weapons from the USSR and France. Reagan also sent Donald Rumsfeld, he was the Secretary of Defense, to meet with Saddam and give assurances of U.S. supports in December 1983. The United States gave covert support to Iran through the infamous Iran-Contra affair in which the United States sold weapons to Iran and used the revenue to fund the counter-revolutionaries, which is the Contras in Nicaragua. The Gulf War. Iraq launched another invasion on August 2nd, 1990, this time on Kuwait, who purposefully increased their oil output following the Iran-Iraq War, and only brought it down when Saudi Arabia told them to. Venezuela then increased the output. Saddam demanded Kuwait pay Iraq back for what Iraq saw as stolen oil. And when Kuwait did not respond, the invasion began. Many nations, including the West, the Arab world, and even the USSR, it was Gorbachev's time, remember that, it's not our USSR, condemned the unjustified invasion. Despite helping Iraq in the 80s, the US turned on Iraq for its own imperialist reasons in 1991. From August 91 to January 92, coalition forces including the US, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, the UK, France and Egypt, as well as 29 other nations and the Mujahideen built up their forces in what was known as Desert Shield. Military action was undertaken on January 17, 91, in Operation Desert Storm, beginning with a ruthless aerial bombing campaign. Desert Storm lasted seven weeks 
and ended in coalition victory. And just on the side, you can see some graphics that show the air power in Iraq as well as the uh, the way that the Iraqis invaded Kuwait back then. And by the way, it was the George H.W. Bush uh, who was in charge, you know, the father of George W. Bush. The 91 war in Iraq ended with a coalition victory in that the Iraqis were expelled, excuse me, okay, were expelled from Kuwait. No-fly zones were set up in Iraq and strengthened U.S. power in the Middle East. Iraq lost 20,000 service people and over 3,000 civilians, many due to daytime air raids which killed hundreds of civilians. There was also the February Highway of Death, war crime, that took the life of 800 to 1,000 Iraqis, some of which had surrendered. Operation Desert Fox followed, followed in 98, bombing Iraq again. That was the time of Bill Clinton. He was elected in 92. In another part of the Middle East, the group Al-Qaeda was formed out of the Mujahideen, the same one that received billions of dollars from the CIA to fight the Soviets in the 1980s. Osama bin Laden was a leader in Al-Qaeda, and he was angered by US action in the region in the 90s. He issued his first religious fatwa for American troops to leave Saudi Arabia in 96, which they had been since Desert Shield in 91. In 98, he issued his second fatwa against American support for Israel and presence in the Middle East since 91. He then orchestrated a massive terrorist attacks, attack against the US in 2001 in Manhattan and Washington DC, which was known as 9-11. Despite the fact that neither Iraq nor Saddam Hussein had anything to do with 9-11, Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden, 9-11 had a profound impact on Iraq as the United States used the attack to justify an entire imperial campaign in the Middle East. And by September 12th, Bush already instructed counterterrorism czar Richard Clark to look into Iraq's connection to 9-11. And Bush administration official said there were no good targets in Afghanistan. Let's bomb Iraq. That was the beginning of the war on terror by George Bush. All right, we'll stop here for our first round of questions and comments. We'll go ahead and take the hands that come up. Yeah, I just wanted to talk briefly about the Iran-Iraq war. Um, my dad actually went back to fight in that war, and a few of my family members actually died in the war itself that I never got to meet. Um, it probably should have never happened, to be honest. The war was terrible, and, you know... Uh, I think that kind of the U.S. played both sides because, well, there was the revolution in Iran that kicked out the Shah, for one. And secondly, they it was kind of like payback. It was essentially there was like clashes at the border at that time. And it should have been de-escalated quickly following the Khomeini's um, 
answer the Iraqi silver so about this government and the U.S. lit like a dynamite that went boom and a lot of people died. My mom's actually her um, her hometown. She's from Khuzestan, actually, and completely destroyed. So, yeah. Thank you for that, comrade. Yes, um, talking on the particular, you know, I think this is just objectively and speaking also like from how things played out. Interesting to note, like, had there been a lot more heavier outpouring and better like support, both, you know, both like diplomatically and even militarily from those from nations that are or were at the time legitimately run communist nations to prop up the communist comrades in Iraq that were being wiped out. I think if that there had been an upsurge and a counter answer to that, we would never have seen the Iraq war, nor would we have ever seen the operations um, Desert Shield and all of everything else that followed the quagmire afterwards. I think if we had supported the communists there, a lot of this could have been avoided. And the nations that were that are communists had the wherewithal and the means to do it. It would have just prevented that right then and there. So just wanted to comment on that. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, kind of maybe an unrelated question. I was just wondering if anyone could give me an idea about the history of significance. I see a lot of the flags sort of in that area being black, red, white, and green, um, and the significance of that in that area. Thank you. Yeah, I can go ahead and answer that. I think that that's the um, pan-Arab colors, if I'm not mistaken, the black, yellow, green, and white. Uh, that's the thing that's in the Sudanese flag, the Palestinian flag, the Syrian, Iraq, uh, e even I believe the United Arab Emirates has that. And I saw some hands go up at that. They want to answer. Uh, comrade, did you want to answer that? Yeah, I was going to say Arab nationalism is my response. Uh, it's the flag of the Ba'athists going back to the 30s, I think, is uh, the reason for the colors. Uh, All right. Thank you, comrade. I'd also add on that the uh, colors of the flag, if I recall correctly, are also symbols of the uh, Islamic faith. A uh, good example of that would be the color black is associated as being the color of the flag of the prophet, and the colors of green would be associated with the, what their version of a royal colors would be, if I recall correctly. It's tied really heavily into the history of the, you know, of the entire region, and, you know, and the uh, faith that's interwoven into the history as well. That's all. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I can relate my own experience to Desert Storm, Desert Shield. I was mobilized in Saudi Arabia when I was in the Navy back in August of 1990. I remember that well. I spent the next seven months of my life over in Saudi Arabia. I was there when the bombs started dropping over Baghdad on the early morning hours in January. We were alerted. Uh, there was widespread, uh, I want to say the pandemonium going on to an extent because it's you know, reality set in that we're actually in a war zone right now. I remember the fact, too, that we had nightly air raid alarms going off and Iraqs was firing their Scud missiles over us on a nightly basis. So we, we have to go into the, the bomb shelters with our, our mask because we didn't know if there were chemical weapons attached to the Scud missiles. I also remember, too, that where I was at in Saudi Arabia, there were several would-be terrorists trying to attack where we were at. One was loaded with uh, a truckload of uh, missiles. 
but was apprehended by the Saudi police. So he very narrowly escaped terrorist attacks during that time. It was a very trying time during that uh, time frame. We were common routine practice for us every night. We were lucky if we got three to four hours of sleep every night when that war began due to the increase in air raid alarms that went off. The next day we had to work all day. And then, you know, we were lucky if we got any time off at all. And then we remember when the ceasefire went in effect, when Iraq was supposedly was withdrawing from Kuwait, but as they were leaving, Saddam had wanted to set off to set off all the oil fields throughout Kuwait. So I remember there was this thick black substance in the air, and what could have been a nice sunny warm day was a very cold day due to the fact that all the oil Two minutes. was so thick in the air that it was basically mass clouding out the sun. We were walking, walking around in our winter gear on a day that it could have been a nice warm day in Saudi Arabia. So that's a little bit about my experience over in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait during Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I just had a quick question, but like, what exactly is a religious fatwa and how did that like result in 9-11 and all that stuff? Yeah, I can answer that one. A fatwa is essentially in the Islamic faith, a religious order. Basically exists forever. For example, in Iran, um, the supreme leader issued a fatwa in 2003 against the obtainment of nuclear weapons. Most notably, also Khomeini issued a fatwa against Salman Rushdie for, because he's, I guess he's like an atheist or whatever, but basically a, a take on his life but 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 essentially fatwa is just religious order by a religious scholar an ayatollah sheikh whatever in islam all right thank you comrades we'll go ahead and jump back to the presentation now so this part is the main part the u.s invasion of iraq from 2003 to 2011 manufacturing consent in the climate of fear created after the 9-11 attacks the U.S. government used the opportunity to declare a global war on, quote, terror and the axis of evil, which you can see some of the nations that they designated as the axis of evil over here on the side, and pump out false propaganda designed to justify an invasion of Iraq to the American people and the international community. Over 60 former and current military officials were paraded onto mainstream cable news networks and newspaper publications to peddle lies about Iraq and were given talking points by the CIA and were paid between $500 and $1,000 per appearance. The main lie that was pushed was that Iraq was building weapons of mass destruction. Colin Powell famously presented this lie on February 5th, 2003 in front of the UN. And you can see over here him holding the vial of white powder that was you know, symbolizing the anthrax that Saddam Hussein supposedly had. And uh, it wasn't only chemicals that they were trying to allege that they had back at the time either, because at some point Bush addressed the American people and said that uh, we had supposedly learned from British intelligence that Saddam Hussein sought uranium from uh, West Africa, uh, which wasn't true. And even the CIA was, was actually mad at the Bush administration for copying that false propaganda. Uh, from the British intelligence. Then the protests. From January 2003 to March 2003, 
About 36 million people around the world protested an impending U.S. invasion of Iraq. The largest day of protests came on February 15, 2003, when millions marched in over 800 cities around the world, including 3 to 4 million in Spain, 3 million in Rome, 2 million in London, half a million in France, half a million in Germany, half a million in the United States, and smaller protests happening in Russia, Greece, India, South Korea, South Africa, Kenya, and more and one million on the streets of Baghdad, Iraq itself. It stood as the largest protest in human history at the time, and that was until the Indian farmers protest in 2020, which took that record. And over here on the side, you can see the massive crowds of people with posters and flags and everything protesting this war all around the world, thousands of them. It just fills the streets. Now we're going to watch the 48 our ultimatum and a couple of other videos with the actual invasion of Iraq. Saddam Hussein and his sons must leave Iraq within 48 hours. Their refusal to do so will result in military conflict commenced at a time of our choosing. For their own safety, all foreign nationals, including journalists and inspectors, should leave Iraq immediately. And now we have on March 19th, 2003, when President Bush announced the start of the Iraq war. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. And we have when the attacks began on, actually it was March 20th, but also March 19th, with the ones happened before this, uh, with shock and awe, the bombing campaign that started the Iraq war. So then we have the invasion. This is March 20th, 2003 to May 1st, 2003. March 19th, the first casualty of the war at Doro Farm was actually where a 2,000 pound bunker buster bomb killed one civilian and injured 14 others. And what had happened here was they believed faulty intelligence that Saddam Hussein was at this place, uh, which he had never been since 1995. And so the first thing was a, a war crime that killed uh, innocent civilians. Uh, then we have March 20th. The first attacks from coalition forces begin in Baghdad and in Basra by the British two days later. The bombing campaign carried out by B-2 stealth bombers, quote, shock and awe begins, taking the lives of 6,700 civilians from March 20th to April 9th. 
And that's 6,700. That's more than twice the amount of people that died in 9-11. March 20th to April 9th. Bombing and ground campaigns rage as American forces assault Baghdad and British forces assault Basra. The U.S. accuses Russia and Syria of supplying weapons to Iraq, which are promptly denied by both countries. Basra is captured on April 6th, the first coalition victory. April 9th, U.S. forces capture Baghdad. Saddam Hussein's statue is toppled and major looting begins in the capital, including of government buildings, hospitals, the Iraqi National Museum, and more. Tikrit is the last town to be captured four days later. May 1st, after the coalition victory, Bush announces from the USS Abraham Lincoln that the war is over and that supposedly the mission is accomplished. We've begun the search for hidden chemical and biological weapons and already know of hundreds of sites that will be investigated. Nice, you like it. The transition from dictatorship to democracy will take time, but it is worth every effort. Our coalition will stay until our work is done. And then, of course, following that, we have the insurgency. As the Iraqi insurgents, including Ba'ath loyalists, Sunni al-Qaeda in Iraq, and the Shia Mahdi army and others, resisted U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. In June 2003, reports started to come out from Amnesty International and others that gruesome torture and abuse of prisoners was happening at Abu Ghraib prison in Abu Ghraib, Iraq. In April of 2004, CBS News' 60 Minutes, as well as Seymour Hersh, brought this to the world's attention even more. Bush and Rumsfeld apologized for the abuses, but stated it was not indicative of U.S. policy. Human Rights Watch, Red Cross, and Amnesty International rebuked that this was part of a pattern seen with Guantanamo Bay and Afghanistan prisons. Only two soldiers involved were held accountable and imprisoned. Abuses included waterboarding, rape, bondage, beatings, humiliation, and murder. 63 detainees were murdered at Abu Ghraib. December 13, 2003, Saddam Hussein is captured by the United States military forces in Operation Red Dawn, which is named after the Cold War film uh, against Soviet Russia. In 2004, chaotic fighting between coalition forces and insurgents was underway in Fallujah, Abu Ghraib, Najaf, Samara, and Mosul. The first and second battles of Fallujah were incredibly ferocious, close quarter battles that also utilized a lot of indiscriminate airstrikes that killed many civilians. The coalition forces suffered their first major defeat in the first battle, then won in the second battle. The second battle of Fallujah was the bloodiest battle of the war in Iraq and was the bloodiest battle the U.S. had been in since the Battle of Hue City and Vietnam War. With 1,202,000 Iraqi insurgents killed, 800 Iraqi civilians, and 107 coalition soldiers. This lasted until November 2004, and afterward, the insurgents quickly took hold again. White phosphorus was also illegally used in this battle. 
2005 would see the first Iraqi election since the start of the war, and voters approved a new Iraqi constitution. Saddam Hussein was also put on trial, convicted of crimes against humanity by Iraqi courts, and hanged in December of 2006. It would also see the formation of the Sons of Iraq, a Sunni group sponsored by the U.S. and with relation to al-Qaeda in Iraq. Many members of the group would later become the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. On February 22, 2006, the Shi'i al-Askari Shrine was bombed. The perpetrators are still unknown. The U.S. alleged that al-Qaeda in Iraq did it, who denied involvement. But the Iranian president and Hezbollah leader claimed the United States and Israel were behind the attack to stoke a civil war in Iraq, which it did between Sunnis and Shiites, which then allowed for continued U.S. involvement. The Iraqi Civil War. This is from February 22, 2006 to December 16, 2011. In September 2006, a third push on Fallujah was mounted, and the Great Sunni Awakening occurs in August, in which the Sons of Iraq gain influence in the city councils. Control of Fallujah is transferred to the Iraqi Provisional Authority in 2007. On January 10, 2007, Bush announces an increase of 20,000 U.S. soldiers in Iraq, quote, to put down sectarian violence in Iraq, end quote. A Bloomberg poll released on January 18th revealed that 60% of Americans opposed the troop surge. Bush's approval rating had been the highest of any president ever after 9-11, up to 92%. His approval rating in early February of 2007 was 32%, and in July of 2008, it was at a record low of 22%. Elections in the U.S. occurred in 2008, and Bush had served two terms. U.S. Senator Barack Obama, who ran on saying Afghanistan was the good war that we should fight, and Iraq was the dumb war that should be ended, and who flexed his opposition to the war over Hillary Clinton and Joseph Biden, who both voted for the war, won the presidency and was inaugurated on January 21, 2009. On August 18, uh, 2010, over a year after Obama took office, American combat operations in Iraq ended and troop presence was gradually drawn down as the war approached its December 2011 deadline that was actually set by the Bush administration. In October of 2010, WikiLeaks published almost 400,000 classified documents on the Iraq war, which revealed over 66,000 civilian casualties out of around 109,000 total Iraqi casualties in the war. And we're going to go ahead and watch just a brief clip of when Obama officially ended that war in Iraq. So tonight, I am announcing that the American combat mission in Iraq has ended. Operation Iraqi Freedom is over, and the Iraqi people now have lead responsibility for the security of their country. All right, and I believe that we have round of discussion now. So a few things. The claim that they were trying to get uranium, I think it like started with supposedly got aluminum tubing that could hypothetically be used for nukes, but there's like no evidence that they would use it for nukes. Yeah. And then 
second thing was the the like looting of like historic Iraqi artifacts and stuff, that kind of stuff. Um, they're actually the soldiers were actually like ordered to like let it happen and even like encourage it because it would help increase the neoliberal shock therapy and like supposedly help them have a better economy later if they're like extra wrecked. And also, I'm surprised it hasn't been mentioned yet, but like this is one of the first wars to get fought by like a lot of contracted private soldiers like Blackwater and stuff. So yeah. Thank you, comrade. And yeah, in the next section, we're going to discuss how uh, the contractors were actually the biggest winners in terms of this war and just how much money they took in uh, and who the top ones were. So thank you for that. All right, so uh, a couple of things to keep in mind on why they were able to get uh, public opinion to the point where they were able to invade Iraq. That picture of Colin Powell with the holding up the tube of powder is supposed to be anthrax. That was successful because not long before the invasion of Iraq and after 9-11, there was the anthrax attacks throughout the United States that was actually ended up being linked to a government, U.S. government stockpile. But that wasn't known at the time. And also they linked Saddam Hussein to 9-11, which was blatantly false. And there's actually a great book called Debriefing the President, Interrogation of Saddam Hussein, uh, written by the interrogator of Saddam Hussein after he was captured, where he breaks down how how Saddam Hussein thought 9-11 was going to help his relationship with the U.S. because he was constantly fighting his extremist element in Iraq. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And it just goes to show how we'll go ahead and prop up one force at one time, turn up, uh, turn against them at another. Uh, that happened with the Mujahideen as well, where basically a lot of uh, Al-Qaeda members had wrote in the 90s how they felt betrayed and they didn't know why the United States would turn on them. And it was like, well, the United States used you for their own purposes. Uh, but it does come around to bite us in the ass like it did on 9-11. And that's one thing that we should take into account when we're looking at the situation in Ukraine now is we're funding these Nazis, um, but who's to say that we won't turn on them at another point? Uh, who's to say that they won't come back to bite us in the ass as well? So thank you for that. Okay, just a couple of things for context. So the first one that's pretty interesting is one of the first things that the U.S. military did was they outlawed the Ba'ath Party of Iraq. And that employed about 50 to 60% of the working force in that country. In some way or another, they worked for the Ba'ath Party. So now all of these people were out of work, very angry at the situation. So this, of course, like uh, helped the insurgency grow like very rapidly. And a lot of these people had police slash military training, you know, and things like this. So that's one thing. And then the second thing that is good to note is that after the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, uh, their government was sympathetic to the United States, and they sent a contingent of 5,000 troops to help in the occupation and invasion of Iraq. So just throwing that out there, this is not something new. You know, they've been a uh, rogue nation for quite some time. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And that's interesting. I didn't actually know that after the Orange Revolution, they sent Ukrainians to fight in Iraq. Uh, that's interesting to note, considering Russia's position on the war was it was the first time after 9-11 where Russia actually broke with the United States in terms of their foreign relations. Russia had went in on 9-11, or not 9-11, to Afghanistan because of 9-11, and had helped us there, uh, but wasn't willing to 
basically go along with America's imperial adventures in the Middle East beyond that. And so that was the that was a pretty famous break between Russia and the United States in 2003 was over the war in Iraq. And of course, Russia helped with Syria later that was going to be the next target of the United States after Iraq. So thank you for that. I noticed a picture of Saddam being captured, and I remember like uh, photos of Saddam being shown in his underwear, and I th I'm pretty sure that's a violation of the Geneva Convention to show like POWs without their permission and everything. The book debriefing the pres president sounds interesting. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I remember one of the things at the time was that the pictures that we had posted of uh, Saddam Hussein being tortured and being detained um, was something that further made those in that area angry with our involvement because we had basically humiliated their leader. Um, you can imagine what um, how Americans would react if you know Trump was you know gagged and beaten. So thank you. It really is crazy what the American mentality was at the start of the Iraq war, because it was, we need to invade Iraq because they have WMDs. Oh, uh, we find out after we've already begun invade, literally like a week into the invasion, that there were no WMDs. Well, it's because uh, they they want freedom. You know, oh, like there's there's widespread insurgent fighting against us, so clearly there's not true. Well, uh, I guess you just hate America then, right? I guess you're just a, a, a hating American. You just hate freedom and everything. And just the hubris of the American government and the American imperialists to just say that, yeah, we're just going to go and destroy your entire country and kill millions of your civilians and then, you know, lie openly to our own people's faces. The fact that people still haven't understood that that's what our government does after Vietnam and even after now it's astounding to me and the fact that I've, I've spoken to a lot of veterans and there's this cognitive dissonance that they have to have where they they were doing good things then they you know they have to have believe that they were fighting for this democracy because otherwise all the horror that they've caused was was for nothing right and that they were nothing more than imperialist stooge i'll just end it with if you want to watch a great movie about that shows how we faked and lied about the WMDs in Iraq. Fair Game, which came out in 2010, is about a CIA agent who publishes an article in, I believe, the Washington Times that says that you know they were she was told to lie about it, and as a result, her identity was leaked by her own government to discredit her, uh, and then she goes and testifies and everything but that's a great example of a historical you know showing if you want if you're interested in learning more about that thank you thank you comrade and that reminds me as well that there was a lot of you know hyper patriotic almost nationalist fervor after 9-11 that definitely helped with the war in Iraq and a lot of Americans had fell in behind that war but one interesting thing to note is just the amount of protest against the war at the time and the fact that in the United States, you had places like New York City had, I believe, over 300,000 people in the streets that day. 300,000 is more than twice the population of the city I live in now. I mean, that's that's a good fraction of the people that live in New York City. 
not that it was all people from the city, but you get what I'm saying. And while a lot of it was started by Answer Coalition and a lot of other left organizations, there was a true coalition of people from left, right, and center that opposed that war. The libertarians were even involved in that action which opposed that war. And at the time, there wasn't that this kind of hypersectarianism about whether or not, you know, to work with this force or that force because we disagree with them on other issues. This was actually a time where everybody understood the repercussions of what would happen with the war in Iraq, and they all got out on the streets and worked together for that aim to stop the war. And even then, it didn't stop the war from happening, but it was still a much larger protest than you see, say, today against the U.S.'s support of this NATO action in, in Europe, which is leading us 90 to seconds. the Third World War. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, going to what I was talking about. Okay. You know, they sold that war to the American public. They had a marketing campaign to sell the war. And you know how smart they are. You do not introduce a new product before September. So each year, you know, August and all that, that's a vacation time. Then you got Labor Day. And now you start over. That's when they sold the war. For six months, starting in September 2002 until February, March 2003, six months of work, and they sold that war to the American public. 85% of the American people believed what they were told, believed we had to invade Saddam because of a clear and present danger to the United States. Even Oprah Winfrey on her show in early or three was convinced we had to go to uh, against Saddam. It was Saddam, 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 all over the media, day and night. That's all. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, speaking on what um, comrade said, I believe that was Valerie Plame Plume. That was the person that had their identity leaked after speaking out. But a comment I wanted to make was one of the more despicable things was it was later found out that the Green family, who are the rich multimillionaires that own the Hobby Lobby chain, had been um, basically caught complicit in stealing from Iraq all these artifacts of ancient history and even biblical importance, but yet no actual charges ever went against them or anyone else that was involved in that. And to this day, there's still multiple artifacts that are missing and countless um things that have been lost from iraq thank you thank you comrade it just goes to show how the western imperialists loot the countries that they invade too that it's not just enough to topple a government or to create instability they literally steal from the country and it's it's just disgusting uh yeah just a little uh information to uh, interesting information at uh, after the uh, about a year after uh, the, the war started, when it was obvious that to everyone that uh, even that there were no at any point any signs of, of, of nuclear weapons uh, being stored, any WMDs at all, they had the annual uh, I think the press uh, they have like a press uh, uh, dinner where uh, everybody in the, in, the, in the press and a bit, all the politicians and the president 
uh, uh, go there and take free money to, to, to support the press. And, and Bush was one of the main speakers. He goes on the stage and he make him believe that he's looking for WMDs. And he said, well, I can't find it here. Let's see. And he there, he make him believe he's lifting stuff up and everybody is hysterical. Everybody is laughing hysterical. hysterical. The uh, press and the politicians, uh, most of them thought it was very uh, humorous. Uh, if the fact that we had lost thousands of men and uh, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis were killed and it was uh, a horrific uh, enterprise. And yet he thought it was very amusing and no one called him to task on that. Thank you, comrade. And that reminds me as well that one of the things that happened last year was Bush actually gave a press conference where he was talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but he had a big Freudian slip. He's sitting there. He's the invasion of one man, uh, the unjustified invasion of, of one man against Iraq. I mean, Ukraine. And then he laughs and he goes, Iraq. And, and then says 75. I'm not sure what 75 it means, but I remember that he said that. And so it was like a big slip where he went ahead and acknowledged exactly what had happened without meaning to say so. And I also want to say with that, that one of the things I've seen that the bourgeois media is trying to push is when they do criticize the Iraq war 20 years on today, they try to make this needless comparison between Iraq and Ukraine as if they're the same illegal unjustified war. And we need to understand that there's a clear difference between U.S. invasion of Iraq, which was unjustified and had nothing to do with any threat against our country or attack to our country, and the justified invasion and denazification of Ukraine after years of being propped up by the United States and expanding towards Russia. There's a clear distinction between those wars. They are not the same. And it's crazy to think that George W. Bush is not a convicted criminal by the ICC, but Putin is. Um, so that's what I wanted to add in there. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say, add something really quick of what you said. Um, uh, the war, even like, if you look back at like any media, a lot of the media leading up to the war in the nineties, there was a lot of demonization of Saddam. I mean, earlier, I remember there was a Seinfeld episode where it said, oh, that's Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein on Seinfeld. And there was a lot of that kind of in the lead up to the invasion in the 90s, uh, similar to how in the lead up to the war in Ukraine, I mean, for four years, we had Russia gate, Russia interfered in our elections, Russia, this, that was basically, that's not a coincidence. That's kind of setting the stage for the imperialist media to spread their propaganda. So by the time that it comes time for imperialist actions, everybody already has that subconsciously in their head of Russia, F Iraq, whatever. So, so that's what I wanted to say. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yeah, I was wondering if somebody could talk about how they were able to lock down the press. Um, I believe that it was very different from what they did with uh, Vietnam. If anyone has any answer to that, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, I can give a brief response and then I'll let uh, comrade respond because it looks like he wants to. Uh, one of the things I know that happened in the mid to late 70s was that the U.S. repealed the fairness doctrine in the media, which had to basically give equal voice to different opinions in the press. 
And since that had gone away, they could go ahead and remove whatever opinions they wanted from the media at that time. And one of the things that happened is on MSNBC, which was parading around tons of current and retired military commanders from different wars to push pro-Iraq propaganda, the Phil Donahue show, which was actually opposed to the Iraq war, got removed from air by MSNBC because basically it would hurt their ratings and it would hurt you know their their competition against other shows like Fox and CNN, which were just going straight to war. Uh, so they took that voice out of the loop there. Uh, comrade, you have the floor. Yeah, the other thing that they would do was that unlike in Vietnam, you know, where news reporters could relatively go wherever they wanted, talk to whoever they wanted, and basically write their own story. In Iraq, if you wrote pieces that went against the U.S. narrative or portrayed U.S. troops in a bad light, you would be shut down. You would be removed from the country, and your group would no longer be allowed to broadcast out of Iraq. And since all of our news sites are businesses, that's less ratings for them, which is less money for them. So you were expected to, everybody wanted to toe the line. Um, that's So one part of it is business. The other part is ideological. Like stated many times already, this was a time of American nationalism uh, fervor. Uh, and anyone who criticized the government was demonized. Right. So no one there are very few people who had the guts to stand up to the Iraq war openly and publicly and even less of them who kept their jobs. That's all. Thank you. The results of the Iraq war and continued U.S. intervention. This is from 2011 to 2023. Prophets, the biggest winners of the war was the oil and arms industries that secured the $182 billion in contracts from the U.S. government to cover everything from private military to rebuilding Iraq. In other words, the military industrial complex. The Financial Times wrote in 2013 that no one has benefited more than KBR, once known as Kellogg's, Brown, and Root, the controversial former subsidiary of Halliburton, which was once run by Dick Cheney, vice president of George W. Bush. He was awarded at least $39.5 billion in federal contracts related to the Iraq war over the past decade. Two Kuwaitis company, Agility Logistics and the state-owned Kuwait Petroleum Corporation, are the second and third biggest winners, securing contracts worth $7.2 billion and $6.3 billion, respectively. The U.S. hired more private companies in Iraq than any previous war. And at times, there were more contractors than military personnel on the ground. The rise of ISAS the second Iraqi insurgency. The Iraqi military, left behind by Obama, wasn't able to stop an insurgency in 2013 by an emergent group, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, which was made of members 
from the sons of Iraq formation before uh, that the USA did. The United States initially fueled ISIS and other groups such as the Nusra Front by funding the Syrian rebel groups and generally aiding any groups hostile to the Syrian government in the Syrian civil war beginning in March of 2011. A WikiLeaks provided classified email from Hillary Clinton in 2013 said, we need to use our diplomatic and more traditional intelligence assets to bring pressure on the government of Qatar and Saudi Arabia, which are providing clandestine financial and logistic support to ISIS and other radical Sunni groups in the, in the region. In 2014, ISIS took a large swath of Iraq and Syria and multiple large cities in the northern and western Iraq offensives. The US intervention in Iraq in 2014 to 2021. On June 15th, 14, Barack Obama ordered Operation Inherent Resolve, the redeployment of the American military to Iraq less than three years after withdrawing to fight ISIS. This was done at the request of the Iraq puppet government installed by the US. This war lasted more than seven years and costed the lives of over 35,000 civilians, of which over 6,000 died at the hands of coalition so-called forces. All right, we're briefly going to watch when President Obama announced that operation. Good evening. Today I authorized two operations in Iraq. Targeted airstrikes to protect our American personnel and a humanitarian effort to help save thousands of Iraqi civilians who are trapped on a mountain without food and water and facing almost certain death. Let me explain the actions we're taking and why. First, I said in June, as the terrorist group ISIL began an advance across Iraq, that the United States would be prepared to take targeted military action in Iraq if and when we determined that the situation required it. In recent days, these terrorists have continued to move across Iraq and have neared the city of Erbil, where American diplomats and civilians serve at our consulate and American military personnel advise Iraqi forces. To stop the advance on Erbil, I've directed our military to take targeted strikes against ISIL terrorist convoys should they move toward the city. We intend to stay vigilant and take action if these terrorist forces threaten our personnel or facilities anywhere in Iraq, including our consulate in Erbil and our embassy in Baghdad. And I wanted to show that because you just it just goes to show you how Obama, despite running on wanting to end the war in Iraq, uh, less than three years after withdrawing American forces, which weren't even fully withdrawn, went ahead and deployed American service people back into Iraq against a force that we helped to uh, basically fuel in the first place. Um, so I just wanted to show that. Uh, Comrade, you can continue. Okay, so the U.S. intervention in Iraq 2014-2021. 
In 2017, Mosul airstrike under the new Trump administration, over 200 civilians were killed, making it the deadliest airstrike since the 03 invasion. In 2018, ISIS began to lose territory in Iraq and troop numbers were beginning to drop. On December 31st, 2019, angry Iraqi protesters attacked the US embassy in Baghdad, which Trump blamed on Iran. Four days later, the US, after using Saudi Arabia to lure Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani into Baghdad, assassinated him in Operation Martyr Soleimani. Soleimani. Iran responded to a few days later with a missile attack on an airbase in Western Iraq that had US forces stationed there. This incident nearly brought the US and Iran to war. On February 10th, 2020, the US began to withdraw its troops from 15 military bases in Iraq. On December 9th, 21, the United States formally ended its combat mission in Iraq again, but left 2,500 troops that are still there to this day. And we're gonna watch a video of Biden uh, announcing the end of that combat mission. I think things are going well. Our role in Iraq will be as a uh, dealing with not, it's just to be available to continue to train, to assist, to help, and to deal with ISIS as it, as it arrives. But uh, we are not going to be by the end of the year in a combat mission. You know, we support strengthening Iraq's democracy, and we're anxious to make sure the election goes forward in October. And uh, we're also committed to our security cooperation, our, uh, our shared fight against ISIS is critical for the stability of the region and our counterterrorism cooperation uh, will continue even as we shift to this new phase we're going to be talking about. All right, and with that, we're going to go to our last round of questions and comments. And uh, one thing that I wanted to point out there with uh, that part about the intervention is just that you can see that it did, it doesn't matter what administration it is. Republican, Democrat, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, they did all the same things in Iraq. They continued U.S. intervention. They killed civilians. They risked war with other countries. Um, Obama brought the war closer to Syria. Uh, Trump brought the war almost to what could have turned into World War III at the time with Iran. Um, we need to remember that so that we ha don't have any, any sort of delusions about any of these uh, people that are president. Uh, they all are imperialists. Uh, they all do the same imperialist action. And the U.S. occupation in Iraq is not over, as we saw. They're leaving some forces there. So there's still more for the U.S. to do in terms of its withdrawal. Um, but one thing that we can at least be happy about is that the main war in Iraq, the concentrated effort in Iraq, is now over. And hopefully, you know, the Iraqi people can start to heal from that. Um, but obviously, that's going to take some time and effort. Uh, so I'll go ahead with the hands that I've not seen go up tonight. 
Thank you, comrade. Recently, I've heard that um, weapons of, of depleted uranium are being sent to Ukraine. Armor-piercing armor weapons material that was used, um, it was used a lot in Iraq, causing, I guess, a lot of birth defects, you know, increasing the rate of, of cancers. And I was wondering if anybody who knows more about that could uh, shed some light upon it. All right, if anybody knows anything about that, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, one of the things that I'll say is it definitely reminds me of something that is related to Iraq in that regard. There's something called the Gulf War Syndrome, which was a disease that affected a lot of people following the Gulf War. Um, and I had heard recently of something like that happening from the School of Americas. Uh, so it just goes to show as well how you look like literally this imperialism affects the healthcare of even the, the the troops and other people in the area that have to fight these wars. Yeah, so to uh, kind of keep it brief, the uh, entire thing about uh, depleted uranium rounds, uh, militarily it's used to pierce uh, more highly advanced uh, tank armors, but in uh, actuality, when it is uh, used in uh, the um, uh, tanks and in other vehicles that use it, when the chemical explosion uh, launches out the shell, basically the blowback from the uh, you know chemical explosion exposes the occupants inside the vehicle, and then as well as the, as it's traveling across the battlefield, it contaminates the entire area, and basically everyone in that region and everyone inside the vehicle is exposed to what is more or less uh, depleted, quote unquote, uh, radioactive material that starts a uh, you know concentrating into the body that does cause a chemical birth effects. I knew a bunch of tank men who basically went either sterile or were uh, basically when they did have children, they were, uh, for the better word, uh, very deformed because it is uh, radioactive material and it causes genetic damaging to uh, newborn children. This is also something that correlates to a lot of the areas that had that fighting happen in Iraq. And it is something that's very devastating to the people there. It's basically kind of like Agent Orange, except we did, didn't necessarily use a, uh, the uranium rounds purposefully to contaminate the area. Many seconds. Unfortunate byproduct of, uh, you know, fighting a war. And as it's being used in Ukraine, you're going to see contamination of the, uh, you know, uh, the soil over there, which is a... a major uh, grain uh, growing place of uh, Ukraine, and it's going to cause a lot of problems down the road. And it's not even mentioning that for a lot of soldiers and a lot of people over there that uh, uh, one of the most common things that they're exposed to outside of a, a depleted lead poisoning as well, and that's something that's really not talked about as well. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I wanted to say as well that one of the things that I know uh, that kind of relates the situation uh, in the 2010s in Iraq to what's happening now in Ukraine is one of the things I've seen is that some soldiers in Ukraine, I think they're foreign volunteers from the Middle Eastern area, uh, actually have ISIS patches on their their shoulders. Um, and there's been some some kind of overlap between the uh, people that fought in ISIL and the people that are fighting for Ukraine. And it makes sense. Uh, the nation of Syria, which a lot of these groups were propped up against, is a ally of Russia and is supportive of Russia's invasion. Uh, so, of course, there would be some sort of uh, 
relationship between the fascist government in Ukraine and these uh, these forces in in the Middle East and Iraq and Syria and in the Levant that oppose uh, Syria and any you know friendly uh, groups. Hi, comrades. Uh, I just wanted to bring up um, another point that uh, Biden brought up with the um, with the Russian special military operation. And he was saying that, you know, no one no one has ever invaded a country since World War Two with over 100,000 troops, you know, but uh, the United States had over 100,000 troops in, in Iraq for, you know, almost a decade. So I just wanted to bring up that that absurdity of the administration. All right. Thank you. Part of uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, was aimed at um, at uh, Iraq. Um, the prime minister said that they needed $88 billion to rebuild Iraq, even to this day. You know, there's still a uh, lack of infrastructure and a lot of corruption going on still. And... Um, but the MI6, the, the British version of the CIA and the CIA went into these countries um, imploring them not to take these uh, investments from China because it would lead to a debt trap. You know, it's, it's just another, uh, you know, um, right now uh, Iraq is actually opposed to the Belt and Road Initiative for that exact reason. So it just kind of shows that, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, even uh, this country that was ransacked by the U.S. is still buying into that propaganda. So, Thank you, comrade. And I mean, the current Iraq government is still a U.S. puppet government that was set up there. Um, so that's why. And that doesn't reflect all the people. Um, as we saw in December of, of 2019, the year, the decade of the 2010s was actually ended off by angry Iraqi protesters attacking the U.S. embassy in Iraq. And four days later, they killed Qasem Soleimani. So it, it goes to show that there's definitely unrest in Iraq. And there's been big protests in Iraq for the last couple of years as well, as people have had a distaste with this uh, U.S. supported government. Uh, so thank you. Yes, thank you, comrades. One thing I'd recommend, you can find it on YouTube. It's uh, a movie that was produced. It tells the, you want to see like how deep, you know, it was easy for the U.S. imperialists to go after Saddam and all the other things that he was facing. It's it's called uh, Saddam's Tribe, and it was first released in 2007. It's mostly told by the firsthand accounts of Saddam's eldest daughter, Rigod. And a few others that were within Saddam's government that saw over the years, like how the U.S. It was basically telling how the U.S. really just conned Saddam and just for their own interests and how giving him all this stuff could make him um, easy prey for when the U.S. just wanted to throw, throw him under the bus. Um, so it just goes to show like how intertwined the U.S. just likes to get buddy buddy with you and then once they have you you're you're basically screwed from that point on so it seems like the point is to not as a government of your own do not you cannot start negotiating with the u.s ever because then that's when they've got you basically 
it just shows how the tentacles of U.S. imperialism works. Second, related to the cluster of depleted uranium, I don't know if you guys understand know this already, but Putin's response in direct response to 90 seconds that's giving them that kind of firepower that's the reason that he decided to put uh nuclear um strategic forces mobile and other in belarus in direct response to that threat coming from us giving them depleted uranium to pro kiev forces so i just want everyone to understand that 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 was in direct response to what the us has done first so that is not Russia provoking World War III with nukes. It's in response to that. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Another dimension of the war that I think is also uh, essential is the question of Syria and the role that Syria has played uh, historically. For example, a lot of the Palestinian groups are headquartered in Damascus, uh, and, and until uh, I believe it was uh, 2009, I'm gonna have to check the dates on that. The uh, uh, which I, which I think is also uh, another kind of uh, uh, ironic thing uh, when the, the democratic uh, oppos- opposition moderate rebels comes on comes on the scene. Uh, you have uh, they used they used to be uh, they used to uh, be ninety seconds operate in, in Syrian territory before they were used by you uh, used by used by the Americans maintaining the, the green zone uh, which we kind of talked about a little bit which was established uh, when we went back in two minutes all right thank you comrade uh, yes uh, like uh, you mentioned like. Putin being convicted by the ICC, he was only indicted, and uh, and they, people were talking about like anti-demonization of Saddam in uh, before the Gulf War. I remember like the movies Hot Shots. Uh, that was a lot about making fun of Saddam, sort of like the interview about Kim Jong Un. And I thought that I didn't watch it, but I read that uh, Oprah's series on the Iraq War was generally opposed to the Iraq War in 2003. Thanks. Thank you, comrade. Hey, thanks. I just wanted a, a couple of things. First, I wanted to add to the answer from the last round uh, from Sarah, Pennsylvania, on the media. Uh, a couple of things to keep in mind. MSNBC at the time was owned, majority shares were owned by GE, General Electric, and they are a military contractor. And also, if you uh, ever sat down, to, especially at that time, to watch the news on CNN, uh, you would generally find three types of commercials in between segments. Oil companies, military contractors, and commercials for other programming on their partner networks. So that's where all their money, that's where basically all their uh, ad money was coming from. And then uh, in this section, it was mentioned uh, that there was a lot of contractors in Iraq. Keep in mind, these aren't generic contractors. These contractors were mercenaries there. And they were there because they were not held by uh, the Geneva Convention and whatnot. I just want to make sure that that point was made. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Hey, comrade. I just wanted to add one major thing to this, and and that's really looking at the Iraqi private sector, even in the modern day, especially when we look at 20 or so years ago and the the foreign ownership of Iraqi banks, um, you know, oil extraction, 
electricity, et cetera. It's still majorly owned by foreign shares. And I just wanted to point that out. Thank you. I just want to say that the U.S. military is the biggest polluter on the planet. Um, speaking of one veteran, he was telling me the story about how in Qatar, they were basically taking their oil, right? And they're guarding an oil refinery. The joke literally just writes itself. But they had to, when they were pulling out of Qatar, they couldn't take the oil with them, right? So did they give the oil back to the people? Did they sell it even possibly? No, instead they just opened up their hose and just dumped 60,000 gallons of oil right into their water supply because they were getting out. They didn't care at all. Uh, and another story, when Obama was criticized for his drone strikes killing too many civilians, he didn't stop drone strikes. Instead, he changed the law, which stated that every single civilian within a kilometer of a drone strike is automatically counted as a combatant. There we go. No more civilians killed in drone strikes, right? You know, and then they celebrated that in the next year. And I remember hearing about that and just realizing that that was, I think, when I realized that this whole thing was bullshit. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. I want to thank you all for your comments and, and uh, questions here. It was a really good class, in my opinion. I think that it was very necessary, especially as we just had the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War and we had the protests around that time. You know, hopefully we can try to cradle an anti-imperialist movement that was as strong as the one was when they protested the war in Iraq. And then we're going to go ahead and end with the international. watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.